Welcome to Stories That Matter, a podcast series brought to you by Storians. We believe that the best way to communicate with anyone is to make them feel something, and that the best way to do that is through the power of stories. So in this series, we celebrate stories that matter. And for this episode, I was absolutely delighted to be able to chat to explorer and historian Tennessee Blackmore. Tennessee is a man with genuine wanderlust. He has a thirst for places, people, and the stories that both can tell. It's not often that I get to talk to someone who describes himself as a regular commuter to Antarctica, nor someone who has the ability to impersonate one of our greatest living legends, something which you'll get to hear over the course of the next 40 minutes, and I promise it's not to be missed. I hope you enjoy listening to this podcast as much as I enjoyed recording it. Tennessee, good afternoon to you, sir. What an absolute delight it is to have you on this episode of Stories That Matter. Thank you so much for having me on, Gary. It's an absolute pleasure. And um, before I kick off, I, I should just uh, um, let's define our terms at the start of this. Um, we've only known each other for a little while, uh, but what an introduction we had to each other. Um, and I'm sure we'll come on and talk about um, that introduction a bit later. But um, suffice to say that we met on a ship uh, and a ship that was traveling to uh, the southern continent, the f- the furthest uh, point south that we could uh, on our way to Antarctica recently. And um, um, yeah, we can come on and talk about that part of the world. But uh, so it's uh, suffice to say, you are the first guest that we've had on this episode um, that either I've met on a ship or met on a ship on the way to Antarctica. Um, so uh, it, it's good to have a few firsts, I think. Um, now, just before we kick off and get into uh, get into the meat of this podcast, which, as you know, is about stories, about storytelling, about the power of stories, um, tell us a bit about yourself, um, you know, what you've been up to, what do you do, what are your interests, and uh, what are you currently doing? Absolutely, Gary. Well, I suppose I can let the cat up the bag and say that my role is to show and tell stories of the marvellous seventh constant, the last pristine wilderness on Earth. And it's indeed, as you say, where we met one another. And I've been doing, I suppose, going back and forth, commuting to the southernmost continent on the Earth uh, since 2018. And I'm a historian, a focus on the human history of Antarctica, uh, which I hope I didn't bore you too much as we spent our time bobbing along. And what I can describe is one of the rougher crossings of the infamous Drake Passage, the body of water that separates South America and the tip of the Antarctic Peninsula. Um, but uh, I'm a lover of all Antarctic stories, um, but specifically the age of sail, because in my opinion, they had it harder than the rest. Um, and the, the, those that followed later with steam and all other wonderful modern uh, tools. So that's me, really, as sort of a storyteller that bounces back and forth from the Very good. And also somebody blessed with one of the better names of guests that we've had on this podcast, and also blessed with a, uh, a, a rare skill 
uh, that perhaps we might uh, use towards the end of this podcast, which is a world-class impersonation of the quite brilliant Sir David Attenborough. But let, let's come back to that later in the podcast. Um, suffice to say, you certainly didn't bore me on the trip, as you well know, because within 15 minutes of meeting you and hearing you talk about the stories um, uh, of exploration, I um, badgered you to come onto this podcast. So it was brilliant to, to have you on the ship. And of course, for me, that trip, was made all the better by understanding more about the stories of Scott and Amundsen and the race to the South Pole, um, which I'm sure you'll be talking about uh, later on. But, um, you know, and, and hearing those really, you know, brought the whole trip to, to life. Um, I like the fact you describe your trips to Antarctica as commuting. I don't think there are many people who would describe the trip to Antarctica as a commute. Um, but um, you've been so many times, I suspect you uh, probably feel that way. Just how many times have you been, just out of interest? So I've been getting back and forth since 2018. So I suppose if you accumulate in months how long I've been away for, looking at perhaps seven, eight months continuously in Antarctica, spread over that period. So um, it doesn't sound cumulative a lot, but that's going back and forth on multiple stints down in the Antarctic. And I'm due to go back in September. The ship is all fueled and ready to go. So, uh, yeah, about that in an accumulated Fair. number of times and trips. Fantastic. Well, I, I hope you don't get the Drake shake uh, uh, that, that, that you described, that passage of water that we crossed. I think with, in our case, 25-mile-an-hour winds and uh, 70-mile-an-hour winds, rather, and 20, 25-metre waves. It was, um, yeah, it was an experience, to say the least. Um Antarctica itself, um, talk to us about it. Um, it's a place that very few people, um, you know, get to see and, and, and have seen over the years, I guess. Uh, magical, amazing, spectacular, all the words that um, I've tried to find to describe it since I came back. But just talk to us about it as a place and, 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 and your sense of it, because you talk so passionately about it that it would be great for our listeners to uh, to hear you do the same. Absolutely. I think the best way of describing it is to say that it is indescribable. And the only way that you can truly experience and feel what it's like to be in a continent, the last discovered continent by human beings, in a place that um, as a species, we have really very little influence. When you walk down the street or see large buildings, it's human influence. But actually in the Antarctica, there is none of that. And what is the most extraordinary thing about this continent about this continent is the scale, is the majesty. To be amongst icebergs that could give a large skyscraper in London a run for its money. To be in such a resplendent environment, full to the brim with marine wildlife in concentrations found essentially nowhere else on earth. To see whales in huge numbers feeding on krills. To hear the burst of expelled air from their blowhole to stand amongst penguins and the chitter chatter as parents rush out to the ocean and commute back to feed their chicks. And it's a constant that as human beings came from storytelling. It was Aristotle that suggested that there might be a continent in the, in the southern latitudes of the world, really for the wrong reasons. He believed in balance in, in, in nature and that there must be equal number of landmass 
to the top as there is at the bottom. And it was the ancient Greeks that gave Antarctica its name, basically anti-bear, Arcticus, which is after the bear constellation found in the north towards the Arctic Circle. Antarctica means the antithesis, or the opposite of that, in the Antarctic. So any image you see of penguins and polar bears playing in the wild is, of course, completely impossible and is indeed in its name. And it was, wasn't was really until the 1820s that human beings first spotted the continental landmass. Before that, Captain Cook had opportunity to sail around the continent, although he never saw it. He really was the first to travel there and suggest that there might just be a body of ice and land towards the, the southern latitude and the pole. And we are part of that history now in the human's very brief time, I mean, infinitesimal time in Antarctic, its history. Um, we travel now for purely peaceful and scientific purposes to explore this marvelous continent. So I hope that's a brief uh, explanation and feel for a place I spent a lot of my time. Fantastically poetic and uh, yeah, brilliantly evocative. So thank you. Um, you mentioned storytelling. Um, it's obviously been a very big part of your life uh, and the power of stories. Uh, and I know because we've spoken previously that, that it started at a young age. Um, this podcast, as you know, is, is, is called Stories That Matter. Um, <clears throat> I think the story of Antarctica is one that matters hugely for many of the reasons that you've just described. Um, but tell me about your experience with storytelling and stories and, 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 and why you became so fascinated in them and where that journey started and, uh, and, and, and where that journey, um, you know, might take you next. Absolutely. I truly feel that we are a species of storytellers. It's such an important part of everyday life now as it was in the past. As with children um, and as a father myself, the way we explain the world we live in is through story and through narrative. And those stories and narratives have changed with the passage of time. And my interest in Antarctica came from stories. My grandmother, interestingly enough, was fascinated by Antarctica and had a collection of these beautiful coffee table books from Shackleton and Scott's expedition. And flicking through those books as a young child, not even able, able to read the text, I couldn't believe that what I was seeing was on earth. And asking my grandmother, who shared small tidbits and stories about this place, is what set the fire inside me to eventually try and get down there and to follow the story. Um, and the history of storytelling in Antarctica is extremely new. Um, and that's a special feeling to be a part of the, the human storytelling culture that's developing around Antarctica now. Um, but stories have always been a focus of my expeditions and my travels in terms of the highlights of them. My first uh, real expedition was to Borneo and spent time with the Ladaya tribe on the uh, Sabah, uh, northern Borneo, Malaysian Borneo, and Indonesian border, in which exchanging stories in an equally extraordinary and all encompassing and overwhelming environment of primary rainforest. Um, and after that, I made my way up to the Himalayas and, and, and heard many of the stories and the folk tales and experiences up there. So everywhere I've gone, I've gone to seek out the stories to answer my own questions which have come from stories so i, I can say that i've made my life a, a, a chaser of stories to these remote corners of yeah this. and i was fascinated in in hearing about um what what potentially may be a 
a new project um, f- for you that you're about to embark on. Um, not only do we love stories, we love fabulous ideas. And uh, I know, like me, you're hugely interested and fascinated by Indigenous populations. We, The story of Scott and Amundsen, um, I didn't realise, was one driven by one of the two of those fine gentlemen, you know, using the knowledge and expertise of indigenous populations to succeed and, and, and ultimately prevail. And we can, we can talk about that when we come on to talk about the stories of great explorers, but yeah, talk to us, um, t- talk to me about your new, your new project, uh, which I know you're the working title for, which is, is, is the last chance to hear. Um, but yeah, talk, talk to us about that and, and, and what that might look like, because I think our listeners would be fascinated in both the concept um, and actually, ultimately, the, the the content. Absolutely, and I'm sure you can hear in my voice. I'm extremely passionate about storytelling, especially from indigenous communities around the world. Um, and we hear in the media all the time, um, and we see the data and the, and the news headlines of the climate crisis, of human intervention, and often destructions of some of the oldest and most extraordinary environments on Earth. And what we don't realize is that not just at threat are countless numbers of species of mammal, insects, but also of stories, of human narratives. Some of them are older than any civilization uh, in the Western world. And the idea of this project is to make a series of journey, 10 journeys to the most remote communities on the frontier of climate-related and human-related endangerment, if you will, um, threatened environments that are at threat of being of extinction, to go and hear these stories, to bring back and to consolidate these narratives into a book, to give another, uh, if you will, angle, another way for people to connect with the crisis that we are in now through the loss of what fundamentally makes us human and the places that these stories have been shared for generation upon generation. I think it's a fascinating um, and quite brilliant idea. Um, And I think that um, if nothing else, uh, when you complete it, it will give me an excuse to get you back on this podcast uh, and and talk about you know the, the 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 travels and and what you discovered. So, I think the last chance to hear is a great idea. Uh, you know, when we talked, um, I immediately latched onto it and said I thought it was um, something that you should do quickly. Um, and um, you know, I, 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 equally, I said to you that um, I'd be very happy to, to to help in any way, shape, or form um, because I think you're right. I think those stories matter. Uh, and I think keeping them alive matters. Uh, and I think the power of understanding what narrative can do to communities uh, matters hugely. Um, so the best of luck with that. Um, just to come on and talk about um, storytelling and exploration. Uh, I mean, we could probably be here all day talking about the the, the many and incredible stories uh, that, that that form the history of exploration, but I, I'm just going to guide you to to a couple, if I may, um, selfishly because they're the ones that I find and, and did find really fascinating. Um, uh, Shackleton and and the endurance and 
the story that many people have have, have heard. I'd love to hear your um, your version, your take, your uh, you know your thoughts on that 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 whole story. I, I know you're somebody that spent time in South Georgia where Shackleton is is buried, and um, that's the first one. The second one is Scott and Amundsen, the race to the South Pole, um, the famous race. But I'm interested. We're interested in. What do people not know about that race? And I hinted at it earlier, at least one thing. Um, yeah, so I, I'd love to hear a couple of things about, you know, both of those amazing stories. Uh, up to you as to where you go and how you start with that. Well, I think we'll start with arguably the greatest survival story of them all, which is the tale of endurance. The moment that Shackleton lost out, if you will, on his grand plans, ideas, and life's ambition of crossing, well, I suppose life's ambition was to make a name for himself in Antarctica, but ambition of crossing the continent and being the first to do so and carrying the Union flag across the Antarctic continent. But although he lost out on on, on that achievement, he gave the world really one of the best stories of all time, a story that has been retold and retold again in, in movies, literature, but everything you read really happened for for real. And for those who don't know the story, Shackleton, hoping to cross the Antarctic continent after Amundsen successfully reaches the South Pole, beating Scott. Scott, of course, dying on his return back to his camp. Um, and Shackleton, a great showman, a man that very nearly reached the South Pole himself before both of them, um, just a question of around 90 miles from the South Pole, came back home and tried to live a normal life. And I could definitely empathize with this for those who spend their time uh, in the Antarctic. It is a, it, it, it's a bewildering and highly addictive place. Struggled really with every business venture he tried and he had to go back one time and he had to go and do something which would capture the imagination of newspapers and the public and it was to cross the continent. And in an expedition that you could look at now and really seems, um, although to be an operation suicide, um, to, to do that with very basic understanding. Half of that journey was made through entirely unmapped and unexplored regions of Antarctica. And it would mean having to go through the Weddell Sea, a part of Antarctica, which I best described as a washing machine of ice. Long story short, he becomes stuck, his ship becomes destroyed, and he faces a challenge now of not crossing the continent and doing so successfully, but of bringing back every single man of his vessel endurance alive. And at that moment that he lost endurance's ship, the vicey grip of the ice, that the challenge changed from simple reaching your goal and achievement to actually saving his men's life. And that became the mission. And through a series of extremely challenging treks across sea ice, carrying lifeboats, they make their way to a dot on the map elephant island solid ground where they then face certain deaths um and uh, the elephant island um his best described is probably the worst pit stop on earth <laughs> battered by the strong prevailing westerly winds of the southern ocean shackleton faced one option to reach salvation an open boat journey in a vessel which is probably twice the size of your bath <laughs> 
um, being generous across 800 miles of the roughest sea imaginable that Gareth Soft can attest to in a much larger <laughs> vessel was not entirely <laughs> exactly. to reach an island that is having spent so much time incredibly passionate about South Georgia, which is basically an, uh, a series of mountains that stick out of the ocean to reach that island where he knew he could find um, uh, whalers uh, who, who were based there all year round. He could raise the alarm that his men were trapped on this island of Elephant Island, reached this island successfully with just a ha- just the most basic navigation equipment, just about be able to take two sight readings of the horizon for navigational slight adjustments as he allowed the power of the prevailing westerlies to push him to this remote island, got there, reached an island which had never been mapped, had to cross that island to get to the right side where the people were, and the fact that he wasn't killed by a crevasse is, is, is a miracle in itself, reaches the whalers raises the alarm, and at that point, most people celebrate and clap. The curtains go down. End of the story. Well, it wasn't for him. He still had to persuade someone to go back to Elephant Island and rescue the remainder of his men under the direction of his extremely loyal and highly capable second in command, Frank Wilde. Um, he went to the Falklands tried number of times to go down to Elephant Island, no luck, had to go to Punta Arenas in southern Chile, and essentially sort of requisition a ship to desperately make their way back. They pushed through the ice and, and, and the challenging weather conditions, reached this island, brought the men back on board, and sailed back to South America. And that in itself was an extraordinary story, but of course on the other side, the Ross Sea side, which is where they were going to be received as they crossed the continent, they'd also got themselves into a serious spot of bother. So after he dealt with the endurance, he had to go and deal with the other ship. But that's a story for a <laughs> An incredible story. Um, and of course, the mission, if you like, or the task at hand became a different one, but became a greater one and a, a more profound one. And it's right, isn't it, that every single one of the men on that trip survived? Every single mountain endurance survived and made it back, which is an absolute miracle. Um, But there are people use the story of Shackleton for a lot of leadership lectures now in terms of why was he successful? How did he keep the discipline and and keep morale up? Um, And there are a variety of different reasons to why. But uh, when he returned back, he had the aid of Frank Hurley, who was photographer, he's beautiful film and photograph of his time there compiled with a narrative that he dictated um that he released a book uh, endurance of south you can pick it up in nearly every single bookshop on in the united kingdom at least um which tells that story in an even greater more yeah so his ability to tell that story on his return uh, you know made a huge difference uh, and having that photographer of course was a huge part of the trip for him um and his ability to do that um Scott and Amundsen, just briefly, are obviously another famous story, but you taught me so much about some of the detail of that story that I didn't know um, that I just wonder whether you could uh, share with us a couple of uh, a couple of things about that story that you know you think might be interesting. Absolutely. It's one of the most famous stories of Antarctica. Most people that have heard of Antarctica have heard those two names. Um, and the, the, the tale itself is, is a complicated battle of two very different mindsets. Um, with Scott, 
many historians argue, in fact, he argues himself, it wasn't a race to the South Pole. It was a very much a scientific expedition with scientific parties, instruments, uh, and, a, and a very accomplished and advanced scientific program um, that he sought to accomplish there. And then you have Amundsen, um, a man who initially wanted to reach the North Pole, but because of two fellow explorers that claim they reached the North Pole, um, there wasn't the money, so he goes to the South Pole. And Armisen is a man that has spent a tremendous amount of time up in the Northwest Passage uh, with the Nesalik uh, people, a community um, living in the Northwest Passage, who he learned a tremendous amount about traveling across polar scapes um, and the use of driving dogs, clothing, key basic essentials to survival. And he made the most use of all of those lessons in the Antarctic, and he reached the South Pole first and returned safely under dog power. Um, and Scott, on the other hand, didn't take these fundamental lessons. He was doing something very different, scientific-based, trying to prove new technology in the motor sled, um, was using man-hauling, basically pulling along your equipment across the flat ice um and in fact using ponies as well manchurian ponies to assist them in this so two very different ways but of course a successful one is the person that listened spent time and embraced the stories of the inuit in the northwest passage and that is what gave armison his edge in the south race to the south and a sense of course that armison's natural state of mind i guess would have been, I'm not the smartest person in the room, and therefore I need all of the available information I can get my hands on in order to give myself any sort of chance. Absolutely. That's, that, that was his mindset, um, and it proved to be fantastically successful. They actually put on weight in their journey to the South Pole and their return the team of Armisen and his dogs and his, actually put on weight, which I think tells you um, really the simple anecdote as much about that expedition compared to Scott's, of course, which had severe yeah, issues. incredible, incredible. Um, can we just talk for a moment about the mindset of the explorer? Um, you you mm. yourself described the, the, the Shackleton's journey in a, a boat no more than twice the size of, you know, you, you're in my bath over you know the one of the roughest imaginable stretches of water in the world um you describe the 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 journeys that scott and amundsen made you describe the unmapped unmapped journeys unmapped i'm going to repeat that word which just feels to me extraordinary that you would embark on a journey to to antarctica in uh, in those days with no maps um on the one hand, it's possible to think that those individuals were clearly just bonkers. But on the other hand, it actually, it actually, and more seriously, I think gives you a huge window into the minds of just certain types of people who have the explorer gene, um, who just want to discover new frontiers and feel that their life's work is about making discovery. Um, uh, and you talked to me about a couple of things fascinating prior to this podcast when we were speaking uh, around DNA, the minds of explorers, and what exploration really means to human beings. Talk to us about that. 
Absolutely. In fact, there is a gene um, that uh, the, the geologists, I mean, I'm not a geologist, but it's been the suggestion of their research. It's got a name. It's called in, in the technical terms DRD4-7R, the wanderlust gene, the explorer gene. And in essence, um, without trying to stumble clumsily and relatively uninformed with the complexities of uh, neurochemistry, um, you get a pretty significant dopamine hit from adventures and exploration. And it's said between, I think, either one in 10 or, or one in five people possess this gene that makes you get a huge amount of... Uh, of enjoyment, fulfillment from exploration. And, and there is a many sort of uh, theories to why it is, but one of the, the clearest and perhaps most obvious is, is that back in humans' earliest history, we had to have certain individuals who were willing to push the frontiers, to head into the true unknown, to find greener pastures or find better resources or find richer hunting grounds. And that continues with us today. And I'm sure um, that, uh, that Scott, Shackleton, Armiston, and many of those possess this gene um, that calls you beyond the horizon to get that hit of dopamine, that enjoyment, that fulfillment that certainly Shackleton could never achieve from sitting behind a desk in the United Kingdom. Yeah, fascinating concept. The, uh, I won't try and uh, remember the name of that gene um uh, 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 but um yeah fascinating and i'm sure that's right and and we see it all around us don't we um those people um who are now exploring other planets those people who are exploring the way that we um you know can uh, can conquer space and uh, um you know that started a long 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 time ago with some of the stories that you've described on this podcast um I'm just going to turn, if I may, to something slightly lighter-hearted. Um, you have got many skills, but one of the most entertaining um, it is your ability to impersonate arguably one of the greatest people currently alive on our planet, uh, a man for whom um, universally loved and has given everybody across our nation and the globe um 97 years not quite 97 because he didn't start when he was born but in his 97 98 years now 97 isn't he um just such wonderful wonderful um knowledge experiences and uh we're talking about of course the the, the legendary sir david attenborough and um i, I will just share this with our listeners um um, you, I think it's true, uh, spend some of your time um, with your children watching Sir David Attenborough uh, at work on the television with the sound turned down so that you can actually replicate and impersonate what he might be saying. C could you just confirm for the wider world, Tennessee, is that true? It is true that occasionally we will turn the volume off. <laughs> and uh, and uh, it's, it's all done with the greatest amount of respect and deference. Um, I was very fortunate um, uh, to be mentored by a fantastic um, uh, cameraman who did a lot of work in talking uh, head sections when David Affer does face-to-face -face, rather than talking to the camera 
parts of his great series. And um, and so I spent a lot of time looking at the lighting and, and the concept and obviously hearing his voice. And so I spent this time developing, I admit, this, this odd talent, um, which, I mean, even if I'm on my own, I will do to myself because it brings me <laughs> joy. I think that says and that, 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 and I, will, I will also just tell uh, our listeners that um, we had the absolute pleasure on the boat of being woken up uh, every day over the tunnel by our expedition leader, Alan, who I hope he's listening to this. And if he is, a huge shout out to you, my friend, for, for leading a, a quite brilliant trip. Um, with your f- fantastic uh, team. Um, but we had the, the pleasure of being woken up over the tannoy. It's the wake-up call. It's 6.45, it's uh, 6.15, and breakfast is served, and this is what we're doing today. But just occasionally, um, Sir David Attenborough would come over the tannoy, courtesy of you. So I just want to uh, have some fun, and I- I'm going to put you on the spot now. I'd like to take you back to one of those glorious days on our trip, uh, and I'd like to take you back to perhaps one of the moments when we were cruising um, through the most beautiful landscapes and-, 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 and suddenly found ourselves in the midst of a family and a, um, uh, of amazing, amazing whales, incredible wildlife. So I, I wonder whether you could just for my benefit, really, because it would be, uh, it would be fun and and memorable. Take us back and give us a couple of minutes of what that trip, what that moment was like that afternoon when we first saw those humpbacks, and maybe recreate it for us, Alastair David. Would you mind? This may not, this may not work, but let's give it a go. It may not work, you know. Let me let me just go and pop and get David for you now, um, and I should get some Febreze to stimulate the sound. But uh, to give you a feel, we're here in the Lemaire Channel, sitting here with a very good friend of mine, Gary Lesh, observing one of the most extraordinary goliaths of the Southern Ocean, the humpback whale, who spends his time here in these frigid cold waters, focusing on the vast amount of Antarctic krill and enjoying the company of a partner or two. It's quite extraordinary that these extraordinarily beautiful creatures were hunted to near annihilation in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. But thanks to huge international intervention, this species was saved and is making a wonderful resurgence in these polar waters. So, David, thank you very much. Uh, And on the basis that... Um, dream though I might, uh, I don't think I will ever be able to persuade the great man himself to uh, to, to, to grace our podcast. Um, we really appreciate that. Um, and I hope that was a little bit of fun uh, amidst the storytelling of, of Antarctica. Um, I, I just, uh, I want to end, um, but by, by really focusing on um, perhaps the more serious side of the work you do and the journeys that you take. Um, uh, nobody on this podcast needs to be reminded that we're in the midst of um, the single biggest crises that this planet faces in terms of climate and sustainability. I don't think anybody needs to be reminded that we all have a responsibility now to to play our part. But in that part of the world, um, when people hear about the Antarctic Treaty, they may not understand really the severity, if you like, for want of a better phrase, of, of what may be coming down the track um, in that part of the world, nor indeed the importance that 
um, that part of the world plays in in the story. Um, so I just wonder whether you might do a couple of things, you know, at the end of this podcast now, Tennessee. One is talk to us about the Antarctic Treaty, the importance of storytelling in terms of our understanding of climate change and sustainability. And, and I also promised myself that having had such a just unbelievable time um uh, life-changing actually profoundly life-changing trip to the most astonishing part of the world that i would come back uh, and tell people um as best i can about it and become a kind of antarctic ambassador but i'm going to ask you to do that really um as the final section of this podcast you know really to just encourage people to do what they can not just visit there because obviously that's not possible for everybody, but to do what they can to protect this most sacred of continents and this most remarkable part of the world. So a two-parter to finish, climate change, sustainability, the Antarctic Treaty, you know, whatever you'd like to talk about, you know, please do so in, in, in that sense and, and then talk a little bit about, um, about Antarctica itself. Absolutely. And the Antarctic has played a key role in showing us the impact that human beings have had on the environment. It is a, an album of uh, moments in humans' history of pollutions, of atmosphere. In fact, we can look at core samples of millennial old glacier ice and actually see the atmosphere, what was contained in that year, um, almost stacked up like the rings of the center of a tree. Um, and there has been huge change uh, in the in Antarctica that the scientific programs of the United States, of, of the UK, um, really of the world, are trying to understand the impact we're having on the environment. And the best way of doing that in many respects is looking at the Antarctic, which on another level is the last pristine wilderness on Earth, an entirely untouched continent that is protected, as you mentioned, by the Antarctic Treaty. A quite an extraordinary document that protects Antarctica and allows human beings to interact with the continent on purely a scientific, peaceful footing. And it was signed uh, in the 1960s and protects Antarctica um, through a series of mechanisms and committees um, from the dangers of things such as mining. But that might actually change. In 2041, the Madrid Protocol of the Antarctic Treaty is up for review, and that's one of the keys to stopping the exploitation and mining of the Antarctic continent. There is coal and, and other types of fossil fuels in the continent, but it actually is rare earth materials, huge amounts of it in the continent. And so as we reach 2041, which now, sitting in 2023, really doesn't feel that far away. We must pass and share the story of Antarctica, that when it comes to a chance to put that back in place, that the countries that we are parts of, that, that we vote in, we have influence in, will ensure that will happen. It's very, very rare in this planet that there is a part of it which in terms of mining, human influence, building, has not been touched. But that could change. And the importance of continually keeping that front of mind uh, in our daily battle 
um, with protecting and looking after our planet is so important, isn't it? Absolutely. And it is something to think about with all of the decisions that we make. To give an example, fishing. Huge amounts of Antarctic krill are being fished, and that is causing concerns for a lot of environmentalists and environmental scientists and the impact that's going to have in all elements that we wouldn't necessarily associate with, with the Antarctic. And it is important, and I think we talked about this, um, Gary, when we were on board, a, a lot of how we are shown the world is changing with satellite imagery, with data. But we are a species that are moved, motivated, and connect through stories. And rather than simply saying, this is glacial recession and this part of Antarctica, or this particular species is doing better or, or overpopulating this part, to actually share our human experiences of engaging with that wonder, I think will play a key role in helping the decisions going forward, not just of individuals, which is important, but also individuals influencing their government to create Antarctic ambassadors for not just the future of that continent, but indeed the future of our planet. I couldn't agree more with that. Uh, and I'll just add a small postscript. Um, for those people who've ever had it on their bucket list, or for those people who had occasionally thought, I actually probably should try to get to the seventh continent. Um, and I was very struck on our trip at the number of incredibly engaged young people, actually, that were on the trip sharing um, small cabins uh, in, you know, uh, uh, fairly cramped conditions, but did so because they felt they wanted to do so in an affordable way. Um, for anybody that's thinking about it, um, don't think about it, do it. Because uh, I, I can honestly say, hand on heart, one of the most extraordinary experiences of my life, one of the most profoundly moving things that I've ever done. Uh, and uh, I would, uh, that's me really um, doing my role as kind of now uh, thinking about being a kind of ambassador for that part of the world. So, um, Tennessee, um, you are um, the very definition, my friend, uh, of interesting and interested. Uh, I have so enjoyed getting to know you uh, and really genuinely look forward to the coming months and years where we can develop our friendship and uh, I can learn lots more from you, actually, um, about the many things that you've encountered in your, in your short and young life. And I should say that for our listeners because, of course, they don't have the benefit of either seeing you on this podcast or knowing that you are actually only 26 years old, uh, which I think is uh, remarkable for all sorts of reasons, but uh, a real reminder that um, there's a lot you can do uh, when you put your mind to it. And uh, um, by gosh, you have done an awful lot um, in your young life and um, you know, all credit to you for that. Just before we go, uh, um, if you're listening to this and you think that's all well and good, Gary and Tennessee, but I may not get down to Antarctica in the next few years, nor indeed, you know, have I necessarily studied the great explorers. If there were one or two things that you could direct people to, a book, a film, uh, a piece of content, what, what would it be really to begin to pique people's interests and allow them to start to become fascinated and engaged in this part of the world and its stories one or two tips really good question i think you can't get far on with bbc's 
natural history programming is absolutely sensational. A lot of my my colleagues and friends have worked and consulted on these projects. They're fantastic representation, especially both frozen planets to, to Antarctica, its story, its history, and the other end of the Earth and the Arctic too. We're looking for the ultimate story of survival to learn more about Shackleton. Definitely Ernest Shackleton's South, available in, in pretty much every bookshop, still in print. It's a fantastic entry-level, phenomenal story that will, I hope, pass on and give you a sense of wanderlust of that continent. So definitely Ernest Shackleton's story South, Frozen Planets, definitely worth a watch. And there are also some fantastic photography or photographic books that have been published recently from uh, all manner of or visitors to the continent that too give a good feel for that as well. So um, plenty of things out there, but those are always my, my go-to Fantastic. Um, appreciate those recommendations, but appreciate much more your time. Um, thank you for sharing your stories. Thank you for sharing your knowledge and your expertise. Um, it, it's been thoroughly enlightening, thoroughly engaging. Uh, and thank you too for the guest appearance from Sir David Attenborough. Thank you very much, Gary. Really appreciate it.